This is uh, going to be a fun podcast today. We got Matthew McConaughey, who we're just going to catch up with. Um, lucky enough to have him on a bunch of times at ESPN. We talk about his career and all sorts of stuff. Brian Windhorst, the latest with Kyrie and the Nets, Simmons and the Sixers, and his thoughts on the Lakers. And if you want more of my NBA thoughts, you get about four hours worth on our over-unders NBA preview podcast with Bill Simmons in-house. That's on the Bill Simmons feed. We taped that one late last night. Uh, That one is done out now. I'll link it to this podcast as well. Uh, And then we'll get into life advice. So enjoy the podcast. This episode is presented to you by Lululemon. The perfect pants do exist, and you can get them at Lululemon. The men's ABC pants are shockingly comfortable and breathable, and they come in tons of different styles and fabrics, all made to make you look and feel good. Whether you're in the office, at the gym, cheering in the stands, or just relaxing at home, these pants are in a league of their own. Buy a pair today at lululemon.com. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card, subject to credit approval, savings available to Apple Card owners, subject to eligibility, savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC, terms apply. Brian Windhorst, our guest, uh, host of the Brian Windhorst podcast, The Hoop Collective with ESPN, and of course, uh, longtime writer. So there's a bunch of headlining stuff that we can get to. Uh, I don't know how much meat is left on the Kyrie and Ben Simmons bone, but we're still going to try. Let's start with Kyrie. Where is this story now in comparison to maybe where you thought it would be a month ago? Well, you know, I think as soon as the vaccine mandate came out in New York, we knew that there were certain players that this was going to affect. Kyrie Irving was one of them. The other players all got vaccinated. So we came, media day came. I was in Brooklyn. Everybody was singing a happy, hopeful tune. And I was like, why? Why would, you know, the vaccine has been available to Kyrie since the spring. He has not taken it all the way here. And then, and the, by the way, the vaccine mandate in New York is relatively simple. You get one shot, you're done. You don't have to be quote, fully vaccinated. The, um, actually, the New York City mandate is less than the um, NBA mandate for what is considered, yeah, the NBA, I shouldn't say the NBA mandate. The NBA rule for what a fully vaccinated player is and what he can do based on his teammates is higher than the New York City mandate. So if Kyrie was going to do it, he would have done it, frankly, is what I was saying. So when, 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 when opening day came, or, you know, opening training camp came and he hadn't done it. I was like, why is everybody just saying that he will? What reason? And the only reason I could think is that Kyrie said, I'm going to do it. I don't know if he did or if he didn't, but those guys were singing a happy tune. And they went out to to, um, to San Diego. And, you know, the place I'd want to be is Joe Sy uh, has his house in La Jolla. I'm sure it's a hell of a house. He has the whole team there. Uh, the owner of the Nets. And I don't know for sure, but Kyrie was at Joe Sy's house. It's the most important thing in the franchise. I'd like to know what Joe Sy said to Kyrie. Did they just joke? Did they uh, go aside into the office? Did they joke out playing croquet on the lawn? You know, but like after that meeting, after that time at Joe Sy's house, when they got back to New York and Kyrie was still not vaccinated, things started changing. They said, we are not going to move our practices. And of course, they looked into it. I mean, even if there was a 1% chance of them moving them, 
they would have looked into it. They were not going to change their practices. Then Kyrie gets cleared to actually practice at the facility. I don't know what the team knew, but I can tell you from people who were there when the announcement came, it caught the team by surprise. In other words, they didn't know it was coming, and I'm not, I don't, I'm not sure they even asked for it. And when that happened, they didn't exactly celebrate. Number three, even though he practiced Saturday and Sunday, they didn't bring him to Philly. This is a guy that they have barely seen. They didn't bring him to Philly. Then they get back from Philly the next day, and they say, yeah, we're not doing this halfway thing. So ever since that training camp and that meeting, again, I don't want to use the word meeting, I'll get aggregated, that, that event at Joe Sy's house, the Nets have been making decisions, taking a harder and harder line with Kyrie. And so here we are. And Ryan, I know that there are stories out there, but Kyrie has yet to articulate his thinking. I know his aunt has said stuff. I know sources close to him have said stuff. He has had one media session where he declined to speak about it. He has not articulated why he is not vaccinated. And so we are really left to just guess at what's going to happen next. Right. And, you know, Shams had the piece last night that was, I would say, strategically a, a counter by Kyrie's camp to be like, let's let's get our thoughts out there. And and Shams, look, you're going to get the info. You're going you're gonna to use that access. But I thought it was very telling that Kyrie's never mentioned any of this voice for the voiceless stuff in regards to the vaccine itself until it was like, wait, I'm getting worked here. So it's not even that I'm anti-vaccine. It's that I'm worried that people are losing their jobs on and on, ignoring the health part of it. So I just felt like tactically, it's like, okay, so this is your play. And in reality, like you guys can come up with this a week or so ago. And so, you know, at this point, like everybody knows my Kyrie thoughts. I haven't spent a ton of time on it. Um, I think those that are closest to him uh, would tell you that they're actually more worried about him than they are ever mad at him because they're just like, what, what is going on with the thought process here? I think it was a little bit more popular where he had more defenders, both in the media and then in NBA fandom. And yet now with this and his explanation, which I think anybody that's paying attention was like, oh, okay, here we go. You know, just whenever I read a piece on Kyrie, then it's immediately like reminding us of all the charitable work, which has been incredible because he's been great with that. But it's like, okay, that part's great, but that's not the part that we're focused on right now. And really, who cares unless you're his teammate? And that's the part where you go, even if Kyrie is his own man and wants to do things differently, okay, fine, fine. Like, I'm over it. doesn't bother me that much. But if I'm Kevin Durant, if I'm James Harden, I'm going, guys, like, we're trying to win a title. We got a great chance of winning a championship here. And it seems that Kyrie does not care about that part, which may be the most odd of the entire thing. Well, you know, I had, I was, I tried to ask Kyrie a question at media day and just didn't get, didn't get to me. I just didn't get to get called on. I, I really, you know, um, I've said this before, but Kyrie, you know, they teach us at ESPN to ask open-ended questions. You do not ask yes or no questions. But with Kyrie, I think you got to turn that off and you got to ask yes or no questions. Um, so I had two questions for Kyrie. One, does your aunt speak for you? Because you remember that Rolling Stone story came out and what she said was, this is not a religious um, decision. It's a moral one. I don't know what that means. Um, and I don't know how it's not a religious decision. It's a moral one is how do you, I don't know how you compare that to he's not anti-vax, he's against vaccine mandates. I don't know how that all squares, 
if they don't, if those people don't speak for him, and if they do speak for him, it indicates it's a um, evolving thing, evolving thought. I don't know. I would just say that uh, I wanted to ask him that, and I also wanted to ask him, Kyrie, do you still want to play in the NBA? Yes or no? Do you still want to play in the NBA? Because if he had gotten vaccinated, he probably has a hundred seventy or whatever hundred eighty million dollar contract extension. When I say probably, I'm not making an assumption. Sean Marks, when they did the deal for Kevin Durant, said we hope to have Kyrie and Harden signed by the start of training camp. That means they were going to offer him the extension, and Kyrie did acknowledge that they were talking about the extension. So, and I mean, you can say that money doesn't matter, and that he's got a lot of money, and that's all fine. But we're talking about. I don't know what half his salary is this year, 16, 18 million. And uh, I mean, we're talking about a $200 million decision here. And so I would just say to him, do you still want to play in the NBA? Is that still something you want? Because I don't know. His actions are indicating that he doesn't. Um, but until he articulates this, and frankly, Ryan, he doesn't done a very good job of articulating his positions in the past. I think it's all like actions speak louder than words. I almost really don't even care about his words anymore. Um, either going to get vaccinated or you're not. You're either going to play or you're not. Um, and after that, I really don't. I mean, if, if, you, if you donate money or donate your time to a charity, that's an action. I understand it. But I don't really think that words from Kyrie, I think he's constantly, I think, I think we're constantly going to be left in circles looking at the ceiling, trying to figure out what he's talking about. All right, let's transition to everybody's other favorite NBA player, Ben Simmons. Why is he back in camp now? We did have like, um, think about the opportunity, the trolling opportunity that existed the other night if Kyrie had been in Philadelphia and Ben shows up at tip-off. Can you imagine if Ben and Kyrie had posed for a photo like outside the Wells Fargo Center? Like just arm in arm, unmasked, um, because it doesn't seem like Ben is fully vaccinated based on what, what we're seeing this week, based on oh he's got to go through a five-day protocol as opposed to a one-day protocol. That's the difference between players who are fully vaccinated and not vaccinated. Uh, you can get a shot and not be fully vaccinated because you've got to wait your two weeks or whatever. But can you imagine what that photo would have looked like? Especially if they like, were outside amongst fans, you know, or even if it was in the loading dock, I don't even care. Can you imagine what would have happened? It would have been an all-time moment. Um, um, you know, Ben, uh, you know, this is a, this is a money thing, you know? Um, so when Ben first asked for a trade, November 15th, sounds like a long way away. And, and November 15th is relevant for this reason. Ben's contract called, as I'm sure you've talked about, no, Ben's contract called for him to get eight and a half million bucks on July 1st, eight and a half or 8.2 million bucks on, on October 1st. And then the rest of his salary, the back half of his salary would, would start being paid to him in two-week installments starting November 15th. So very large checks, larger than your checks and my checks, not to make assumptions. Um, that's, a, that's a fair one. Yeah. Um, you know, large checks, but you know, he was going to have the $16 million in his pocket. And he was thinking that even if they find the bejesus out of him, as long as this was resolved by November 15th, he could he could negotiate his way out of it. So he thought he had this long runway between really June, which is when he'd asked for the trade for the first time, and November 15th. 
Well, a couple of things happened. Number one, the Sixers didn't trade him. They kind of called his bluff. So he extends the bet and doesn't report to training camp. And then they withhold the second payment. And they start taking fines out of that. Then the NBA makes a ruling. And it's still a little bit unclear to me, Ryan, how this ruling came down. But they examined the rules and they said, you're not, if you don't show up for a game and you're in breach of contract like this, you don't get fined one 145th of your salary. You get fined one 92nd of your salary. Now, you may not, you may think this is all mumbo jumbo and you may not think it cares, but that's a hundred, like $20,000 difference for him per missed game. And they, had a posture where they were like, you're, we're, we're going to take the money out of this escrow account. And you're never going to get it. So he went from thinking, I'm going to have 16 million bucks in my pocket and fines that I can get back. And the fines aren't going to, are going to accrue at a certain rate to, I don't have 16 million bucks in my pocket. They have 8 million I should have. And the fines are, are going faster than I thought. And they're not trading me. And so basically the Sixers called the bluff and, and improved their positions and Ben folded his cards for this particular round. So the real question is, and you know, I don't know when Ben is going to speak to the media or we, well, we have to actually wait and watch what Ben Simmons is showing up. Is it going to be a Jimmy Butler version where he's in FU mode, uh, where he's you know, terrorizing his team or, or, or you know, causing his team all kinds of problems? Is he going to be in total laissez-faire summer league run mode where he's just sort of running around out there and not really doing anything and making it hard to even play him? Is he going to be in kick-ass mode where he's out there playing his ass off and trying to like send a message and try to get traded? Is he going to hold in and basically say, I'm here, but I'm not going to play? I don't know how he's going to play it, but that's the next phase in this saga. Once and is cleared and is able to play. And obviously the, the, the reaction from his teammates will be a story and the reaction from the Philly fans will be a story, but ultimately those will pass. The real next phase of this story is what type of Ben Simmons is actually going to be in uniform or not uniform. Let's get you aggregated. What was the closest they were to a trade? I don't think they ever were close. I don't think they ever were close. I mean, I, I talked to some teams who told me some of the things that Philly asked for. Um, and, um, you know, some of that stuff has been out there, you know, multiple starters, multiple first round, unprotected first round picks, swaps. They were asking for him like he was a, a first team all NBA player. And so the teams walked away from it saying, there was, I, I think, within the last couple of weeks, they were still in talks with teams. Um, a couple people described it to me, it was like there was a bit of a softening of their position, maybe a little bit more of realistic discussions. Um, but I don't think they were ever close. And um, uh, the teams that I talked to that had talks with him said that they think that he's not really, when I say he, Daryl Morey, isn't really interested in making a trade now anyway. That he's going through the motion of making trade talks to sort of set the bar and stuff like that. But he's waiting for circumstances to change another player to get disgruntled elsewhere and want to trade uh, another player to get hurt or a team to get off to a slow start or a, a team that was expected to make the playoffs um, falter out of the gate or whatever. 
he's waiting for situations to change because right now he's negotiating from a position of weakness. So Daryl wants to wait till he negotiates from a position of strength. And so that is the impression that teams who um, negotiated with him got. And so that's what I suspect is what he is doing. Is he's waiting for the offers to change, be it through an outside force or, or through Ben playing and looking great or something. No, it's a really important lesson to constantly remind ourselves that if you're a GM and you're sitting around and you go, okay, I don't have to do this today. And we know somebody is going to surprise us. That's what this league is. It's what it's been the last few years is that every few months we're going to be surprised again and maybe they're positioned better and it, it ends up being a solution that none of us ever saw coming. So um, there right. are two instances, I want to say, there are two instances of teams that had guys who demanded trades, uh, star players who demanded trades, and they just wrote it out. And, and there's probably more than two, but two that I can remember in the last 10, 15 years. One is Kobe. Kobe says, I'm never going to play in the Lakers again. Reports, they, they, you know, they end up um, doing the Gasol trade. They make the finals. Kobe wins the MVP. By the way, to remind some of our listeners that may have forgotten, he went on the warpath for an entire oh. summer. He was going on shows. I mean, he went... I remember I was at the Orlando draft camp when it was happening, and everybody was just like, did you hear him? I mean, that was as defiant and determined, and then it was like, no, we're good. I remember... I My memory may be flawed here, so I apologize. People could take this apart. I seem to remember there was a show. It might have been a call-in show. Was it Stephen he, A's local New York or something like that? He called in... Yeah. Did the interview. Let the me interview check. ended. And then he called back. It's like, by the way, what well, just to me, you know. Um, I do think I remember him calling into Stephen A. Um so all that happened. And um then there was Dwight Howard who demanded a trade. Um and the the magic were willing to do it. Uh and then like three or four days into camp, I know I was there, they changed their mind and they said, you know what? We're going to keep him. And they, I think they told Dwight we were going to keep him. And it was a rough patch, rough days. And, but eventually they got on with it. And remember, Dwight, midway through that year, like in the middle of the night, picks up his option for the next year. Yeah, that was the weirdest thing. I was going to remind you, like, right. but you remembered. He picked up the option and then demanded the trade anyway. Like that gave you a real, well, was a real window. On. Yeah, but it was, <laughs> yeah. it was a real window into Dwight. It was like you demanded this trade. It, it got really weird. You didn't get it. And then you picked up your player option and then demanded a trade again later. And then got it. But yeah. what, I remember about, what I remember about that is he, I think they had played in New Orleans and you know he was in a happy place with the team and they post one of those photos on the team plane where they all get around each other. And he tells the team on the team plane, I'm picking up my option. And <laughs> Otis Smith, the general manager, says, you know what, Dwight, why don't you sleep on it, you know, before you sign any paperwork? And so he comes back and no, I'm all good for it. And he he Dwight describes this meeting that the ownership had to like, you know, get him to sign this. And he's like, they had all my favorite candy. Like the people were like, Dwight, why what changed your mind? He's like, well, I went to the meeting and they had all of my favorite candy. I'm sure that wasn't the reason, but it was just a amazing response. Um an amazing response response so um it has happened before where teams have just held up their hand on a trade demand and just you know ground you know got their way through it uh, so i think that as bad as this looked at times i want to point out that this has happened so that that's not forgotten 
thought and on the table something that could happen here as well. Where are you with the Lakers? I have a policy that I've personally enacted that I'm not going to judge them until Christmas um, because I think that they're going to look bad early on. But when I talk to scouts who are out there watching them, because they've, they've played five preseason games. And the Lakers are, there's teams playing four preseason games and they're spiking two of them with, uh, with their end of their bench. Lakers are playing seven. So I'm not really surprised that they haven't until Monday night, or I guess it was Tuesday night, they didn't play um, their big three together. So, I mean, a Laker fan is going to say, well, we haven't played our guys together. Okay. Um, I got it. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to the scouts and they're like, this looks terrible. Their roster doesn't fit. You know, it's not, I don't think it's going to work. And I've got people out there going, I'm, I'm worried for Frank. I'm worried for Frank Vogel that they're going to blame him for this. Uh, now, I will point out that now they have two injuries to wing players. And um, uh, those injuries, the two surgeries, Ariza and Horton Tucker have surgery out for a, while, a long time. They're going to be out for months. And um, so that kind of buys them a little bit of a uh, a little bit of a window if they don't get off to the greatest start. Also, their schedule is very favorable. So um, I think they're still going to be good. But like my concern is when Carmelo comes out and says, "If this team doesn't win the title, it'll be like the 2004 Olympic team not winning the gold." And I was like, "Ooh." <laughs> First off, Melo, I wouldn't bring up the 2004 Olympic team. It's the only blemish on your Team USA um, resume, and it your Team USA resume is great. Secondly, um, I wouldn't set this, this, the tone that this team is going to be like an all-time dominant team. They could absolutely win the title, but they've got some things to overcome. And so, like, I'm just, if this team starts six and six or, you know, five and seven, I don't know how that's going to be reacted, even though the last two years in Houston and in, 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 in uh, Washington, Westbrook started very slowly. So uh, I'm expecting a slow start, but I know that the world and the Laker fans, especially a lot of them, at least will, ex- they say they will see the photo from media day where the six guys who they think are going to be hall of famers are on the team. And they will think 70 and 12, let's go. Um, will, will, will we even lose one game in the playoff series? Cause there were, there are fans who felt that way. So uh, I think they can win. I think they can win, but why, what do you think? I think it's going to take them a while to figure out the personalities and the rotations. And there's going to be a couple of people that are really pissed off and it's going to suck for Frank. And if LeBron and AD are still healthy, I think they'll win the West. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, if LeBron and AD are playing at the same level that they played at last year at their best, because we know when AD got, when, uh, when LeBron got hurt, when he had that ankle injury, I think they were second in the West. Yeah, they got their their start. The first whatever thirty games was a twenty six and I forget what I'll look it up here. But their start, I was like, okay, you know, this is this is how good they are again. And I I know the roster isn't perfect. There's some wing stuff. I, I think I think what they're going to do is they're probably going to play nice with some of the older players and give them kind of fake minutes, and then we'll start to see that closing group be identified a little bit later on. Well, and it's how much are they the actually going to play LeBron and Westbrook together? That's what I want to see. You know, yeah, the- <laughs> I, I I think Westbrook is a great addition for the regular season to help them get through stretches where their energy is flat or one of the other two guys is missing. 
he plays hard every night. I'll give him that. And the only thing I'll say is, is that no matter what you want to say about in the last two years, hell or high water, who's ever was healthy, they were a great defensive team. When Anthony Davis got hurt last year and they went through that period and then LeBron got hurt on top of it and they were both gone. But from when Anthony Davis got hurt to when he came back, their, their defensive numbers actually minorly improved. They went from like the fifth best defense to the third best defense. And Frank Vogel, no matter what you want to say about it, he has gotten them to defend since the day he got there, whoever his personnel was. So if they defend the way they defended the last two years, then everything's on the table for them. And even if Westbrook is throwing the ball into the third row five times a game, they'll be able to survive it. And even if their three-point shooting is a little off, they'll be able to survive it. My question is, with 12 new players or whatever it is, whether he can, and some of them are defenders, whether he can bring that defensive mindset back. Because that is, to me, you know, the, they won the 2020 title with defense. I mean, defense and Cantavius Caldwell Pope three-pointers. Um, that was their, what pushed them over the line. And so, if they defend, sure, sure. But it's, it's just, it's hard to know when, you, when your whole team is brand new. Yeah, it's 22 and seven. So when I, I remember going back, Pretty and good. they had another little run. I think they were 28 and 13. And uh, I thought that was a really good team last year. And I don't love everything about it. And I still think the top of it is really good in the West, but it's so much unknown. Like Denver's probably still going to have a really good record. I think Utah's going to have a really good record. Um, you know, Golden State, I still hold out hope for because you saw Curry carry them and you know, some other pieces are coming back. But it's. I think it's hard to make like a really forceful argument that picking the Lakers is a mistake. I still like Phoenix a lot. You know, I I think Phoenix might be a safer bet, but then you're basically betting Chris Paul's injury against Anthony Davis's injury history. So <laughs> you know, what, what do you what do you want to do? I mean, at least Paul's still playing. Um, but I got to wrap up here. But give me uh, who did you have coming out of the East then? How am I supposed to know? I yeah, mean, I think uh, Brooklyn's the best right. team. Brooklyn's the best team. What do you, I mean? What do you? I mean, how can you say different? But I don't know what's going to happen with them. You know, Giannis looked pretty good in the finals. They got to be happy right now. Milwaukee's got to be in a good place right now seeing this stuff go on. Hey, man, thanks a lot. We'll catch up again soon. All right, take care. This episode is brought to you by Royal Caribbean. What are you going to do for your next vacation? Beach, island hopping, hiking, a little culture? Choose Royal Caribbean and you can go on all the vacations at once. That's the point. You want to go to Greece? How about they get you there? Everywhere else. I've looked at the Alaska packages. Alaska Inside Package, Alaska Experience Cruise, Vancouver Round Trip, One Way Out of Seattle. They have it all. They make it easier for you with adventure at every stop. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Visit royalcaribbean.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Netflix. A gentleman always opens the door for you, but the gentlemen are just as likely to break it down and stash their drugs inside. The Gentleman, based on Guy Ritchie's award-winning film, is a new Netflix series that follows a whole new cast of criminal lords and ladies slumming it in Britain's criminal underworld. Guns out and pinkies up. Don't miss The Gentleman, now playing only on Netflix. Uh, I'm lucky enough to get to talk to you a few times, and uh, my number one rule whenever I have somebody say, hey, I'm, I'm interviewing McConaughey, I was like, just make sure you say Matthew, because he corrected me on that years ago, and if you think you're vibing with him a little bit, you don't say Matthew, he's going he's gonna to let you know, and I think it, well, I thought it was cool as hell. And I got to let you know, because uh, my mom, who's about to turn 90s in the other room, and, 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 and she let me know that on the kindergarten uh, playground. 
when I la- when I answered to somebody who said, Matt, you want to play on the on the monkey bars? And I said, sure. And all of a sudden, next thing I know, I was on the ground looking up, going, what just hit me? And it was my mother going, what's your name? I named you that for a reason. Don't you ever answer to Matt again. So, yeah. <laughs> it was because it, it set me straight. It was right during one of our ESPN radio deals. And I go, you know, because a couple guys like, hey, I got I got my, I got them coming up. I go, here's the first thing you need to know. Um, you know, going through the book and listening to a bunch of interviews, you know, now it's on a paperback. Um, one of my favorite things about your story, and, and I feel this way about people, is that if you're you, you you're, if you're yourself long enough, then people kind of figure it out. Do you think it took, whether it's Hollywood or the world that's consumed you as so many have consumed your work and everything, it took everyone on the outside to catch up to you and what you're about? That's a great question. Um, look, the editor said sometimes you change by staying the same. I don't know who said that, but there's something to... I, do I have I changed? Have I grown? Have I evolved? Have I bogeyed and have I birdied? All that's sure. But there's certain things about me that I've never changed from the beginning. I mean, I remember getting out to Hollywood. Hey, got to change your name. You know, not not from <laughs> Matthew to Matt, but let's get rid of this McConaughey. How do you say that damn last time? I was like, no, no, no. Let me just so, so we can get started. That's not an option, no matter what. I'm not changing my name uh if, if if i work out and get successful people will learn how to say it because you know it's mcconaughey rhymes with what would madonna say hey, i put that on me to have them to be able to say it right you know let me let, put that on me to be able to succeed or not enough to where people will know how to say it for instance um you know it came out and, you know you hear whispers hey you got that southern you got that southern accent let's neutralize that I was like Okay, not not enough. for a role, yeah, but in life, no, I'm not. I'm not playing another part uh, in in real life. I, I've been trying to close those gaps between. We all got a gap between who we think we are, who we intend to be, who we actually are, how someone receives who we are, and how it gets edited. Well, it's the same way in movies. You know, I got an intention of what I want to do. Well, there may be a gap between what I want to do and what I'm actually doing. There may be a gap between what I actually do and what gets recorded on the camera. And there's damn sure a gap between what I initially do and what gets put on the final film, edited. I'm trying to always close those gaps. Um, you know, and I've worked on being as much my true self as I can be along the way. I love the beginning stories, you know, the origins, because any of this cool stuff, right? Any of the stuff that's hard, there's those moments. and you know, Texas guy, UT, you know, like everybody read everything about you and, you know, okay, law school, we're, we're thinking about it. What was that transition like when you go, you know what, like for me, it was always, I knew the things I didn't want to be, but what was it for you when you said, okay, I'm actually going to give this a real go and and the people around you, what was that like? Well, uh, so I'm in my sophomore year of college, university of Texas. Um, all I've ever thought of being or expected to be to that point was to be a lawyer. I really, really wanted to be a defense attorney, criminal defense. And that's all I ever thought about. And hey, if I could pull that off, great, you know. Um, but all of a sudden, it come sophomore year of college where you got to start looking at, hey, these credits that I'm getting, they better be directed in one lane because it, it, it's not just liberal arts anymore. They have to be directed towards law school. And if I change my course schedule later, I'm going to lose credit. So I'd been writing, I'd been, you know, writing short stories, keeping journals and stuff like that. I only had one friend, Seth Robbins Bendler, who I went to high school with. He had gone to NYU film school. He's the only friend I had the courage to send him some of my stuff. I don't know. What do you, what do you think? You know, and he, 
would always give me a good opinion. Real back, I said, man, this is some really interesting stuff. You're a really good writer, and these are great creative stories. And he's the one that first said to me, and you ought to think about getting in front of the camera too. You got good charisma. You got good character. Um, and I was like, oh, I could do that. Isn't it true too? Like, even if you really want to do that, you're embarrassed to say that you want to do it before you've done it, right? I was, and I, I mean, I was, it would be part embarrassment. It was part of. Uh, for me, who do you think you are to even dare to, to think that could be a, a real vocation? You know, it goes back to that call that I made to my dad when I call, I got the courage to say, Dad, I don't want to go to law school. I want to go to film school. I thought he was going to say, <laughs> yeah, on Saturday, <laughs> take that up as a hobby, buddy. <laughs> you know what I mean? You want to get into the arts? Yeah, okay. Saturday afternoon hobby. But right now you get a nine to five job, work your way up, go to law school. He didn't say that. He told me the three great words, don't half-ass it. Um, and, and gave me a lot of freedom and, 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 and incentive to go chase down storytelling, which I didn't even, couldn't admit when I went to film school that I wanted to be in front of the camera. It was sort of a hedge. I got into the film behind the camera business. Did I really want to be in front of the camera? I think so. I just couldn't, I just, I couldn't even admit it to myself. So it was a way in... And yeah, I was making films. Other classmates were asking me to be an actor in their short films, which I was really happy to do. And was, I think was better at it than I was behind the camera. It was quick, though. I mean, it's it's because I, I love everybody's struggle story. But I mean, I think you finished up school, what, around 93 days is 93. And so that stage of of trying to figure it out. And I know the shot locations may be a little bit different, but Take me through that timeline, that yeah. part of it of, of deciding, okay, I'm going to LA, but it's like, holy yeah. shit, I'm actually in this pretty popular movie. Like it shouldn't happen yeah. this fast. So, so check this out. So we make we make days of confused in the summer between my junior and senior year. Three day, three lines turn into three weeks' work with a character named David Wooderson in Days Confused. I go back to school, graduate my senior year. As I'm about to leave and I've got my U-Haul loaded up and 2000 bucks in my pocket to drive west, young man in Hollywood, because the movie Stays Confused is now coming out and that'll be my resume. Um, I decide to, to take this role and I get this role in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Next Generation. 320 bucks under the table a day, man. Let's do this thing. Shooting in Pflugerville, me and Renee Zellweger. It was a hoot. Got to have a mechanical leg and play a tow truck driving bad guy, you know, with the, who's looking for the batteries for the remote that runs his mechanical leg. I was like, oh, yeah, this sounds fun. So I do that for a month. Now I reload that U-Haul and I head west with that 2000 bucks. I go sleep on the couch of the man I met in the bar in Austin who got me the job, cast me in Days Confused. A year earlier, I get out there. Look, my first audition was for a film called Boys on the Side. I ended up getting that job. My second audition was for a film, a Disney film called um, In Hollywood. This is in Hollywood, after Dazed, after Chainsaw. My second, first audition was Boys on the Side. I got the job. Second audition for Angels in the Outfield. You know what the damn audition was for me? I walk into the producer's office to go meet about a role. It's 2, 2.30 p.m. on a Tuesday on the Warner Brothers lot. The sun was hitting the door that I was going into the meeting in, in the ground floor. As I open the door, I'm backlit. I see this bearded guy on this couch leaning back. He goes, ha ha, look at you. I go, yes, sir. He goes, all American kid. I had a white t-shirt on, American cap. 
I said, yes, sir. He goes, ever played baseball? I said, 12 years, sir. He goes, you got the job. <laughs> that was it. All of a sudden, they're paying me Schedule F, $48,500 to go play baseball with Carney Lansford in Oakland for 11 weeks. I'm like, uh, please, possible? Is this legal? And I went and did it. So my, I didn't have that struggle story of trying to get work and not able to get work. Um, and it just fell. That's how it fell out, fell, fell in line for me. The rom-com part of it, you know, which, again, we can get to the reconnaissance. So I, I'd like to take it any direction that you haven't already done a million times, which I knew was tough, you know, a book and we're learning about your stories. You know, by the way, uh, Ghosts of Girlfriends Past, I have an ex-girlfriend that's in that movie with you. Oh, she yeah. She is. It's a scene with a lot of women. So I don't know if she stood out, but she's she's the blonde that asks or says, you never called. She walks up to you and she goes, uh, you never called. I believe I know who you're talking about. Ex-girlfriend, you said? Yeah, ex. I don't like the way you answer that, though. Well, what I, what I was, I was going to say is, is, is as far as my memory, my recollection goes, you have very, very good taste, uh, Mr. Slough. We went to go see it when it debuted. And I was like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to pay attention to the movie and also her. Let's see if I can read anything here, but I still I still feel good about it. I, I still feel like I was okay. Uh, <laughs> you're you're killing it in these movies, you know. And I, this is what I admire about you because I think anybody that's like you. I mean, look, we can use the term artist loosely here for this for this context. Let's just use it. I don't know that anybody starts out saying like I have writer friends. I don't know that they start out saying I hope I can do a sitcom on a network that I'm, you know, kind of doing layup jokes on. I think everybody wants to show that part of them off. And once you decided, okay, I've crushed it. I've made a ton of money. I've done all these things. It works. This is the formula. I can do this the rest of my life. How difficult was it for the people around you to understand that you needed to make this pivot? Yeah. So you're talking about I had had like four rom-coms in a row and all of them did pretty well. Yeah. They were, you know, rom-coms in the studio, Hollywood studio system at that time, they're mid budget, which would be about 30, 35 million. We were, they were making about 65, 70, which makes the studio really happy. Um, they're making money, they're entertained, they're fun, they're lightweight. I'm enjoying them. They're paying for the rent at the beach houses that I'm running surfing shirtless on. That is part and parcel being documented as sort of a, um, a real life side story rom com, <laughs> like oh, McConaughey just comes off the beach shirtless and walks on set and says, "What are my lines?" <laughs> right, and it's, that's kind of what it was looking like. Um, now, mind you, I'm, I didn't have any problem with that. I'm like, "You're damn right." I've 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 worked to get the money to pay the rent in a place where I can live and go shirtless and surf and run down a beach. Uh, thank you. Um, but at that time, I just met my now wife Camilla. Well, I'd met her earlier. Um, I'd, I'd met her about a year earlier, but I was falling in love. And enough so that we, um, we decided to uh, um, try and make a baby. And we did. And we, she just had our first child, Levi. So, you have kids? No, I don't. Okay. Well, any fathers out there, y'all know, man, you have your first child. Man is never more masculine. I mean the vitality and the clarity where the head is in sync with the heart is in sync with the spirit. I mean, it gave me courage to go, look how vital my life is. I've got such more meaning in my own life. I, I have more rage. I have more sadness. I have more joy. I have more happiness. I mean, I, I've got dependence now um, in my life. And 
I was feeling so alive in my real life that I was also like, but in my work, I kind of feel like I could kind of do it tomorrow morning. It's another rom-com. They're going to build light. You do, the stakes are not high in rom-coms. They're not supposed to be high. Um, they're Saturday afternoon flip-flop characters. Um, and I said, man, I wish my work could challenge the vitality of my life that I'm feeling now. Well, where do you find that as an actor? In dramas. So I'm going to my agent trying to do dramas and every studio is like, nope, don't want McConaughey for that. You stay in your rom-com lane over there, McConaughey. And I'm like, what about this one? I'll take a 400% pay cut. Nope, don't, still don't care. Stay in your lane in rom-com. So all of a sudden I'm like, damn it. If I can't do what I want to do, what if I quit doing what I've been doing? Well, big decision. I call my money manager, said, how have I saved my money? Because if I make this move and say I'm not doing rom-coms, I'm, I might be dry for a while. I'm going to be in the desert of, of work. I might not work for some time. He says, you've saved it well. You can afford to do that if that's what you want to do. I call my agent. He says, I got your back. Whatever decision you make, I'm behind you. I have a long teardrop session with my wife about, wow, I, this, this is a huge risk. And she knew I meant it, knew me well enough to know why I meant it and said, okay, you do this. She repeated my dad's line to me. If you're going to take stop doing rom-coms and you're going to commit to that, don't half-ass it. And she knew. She was like, this is going to get wobbly. You going with that work, Matthew. She knows, you know, man, I need work for significance. I need work to keep my compass, you know. And, and she goes, it's going to get wobbly. You without purpose every day of a vocation. She goes, I'll be here to support you just... We're not going to pull the parachute. You're going to get like, well, I got to go back. I got no matter what if it, she goes. What if it's what if you never work again? What if you just took a one way ticket out of Hollywood? And I looked in her eyes, looked in my own eyes, and said, "I'm going to find out." But I'm not. I'm 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 not going back and doing any any rom coms right now. Well, it was dry for twenty months, just under two years. I mean, the first six months that I said I'm not doing rom coms, everyone thought I was bluffing. That's all Hollywood sent me was rom-coms. I read those scripts. When I'd read them, I'd say, thank you, but no thank you. I got a story in the book about that one that came in with the $8 million offer. As I read it, I was like, thank you, but no thank you. Came back at a $10 million offer. I said, I don't need to read it again. No thank you. They came back at a $12 million offer. I said, I said, no thank you. They came back with a $14.5 million offer. I said, let me read that thing again. <laughs> <laughs> It was the same words, Ryan, as the first one, as the $8 million offer. The exact same words, the exact same script. But somehow at $14.5 million, it was funnier. It was more well-written. It had more angles. I saw more possibilities about how I might be able to make this baby work. Anyway, I ended up saying no. Now, when I said no to that $14.5 offer, I think it sent, my hunch is that it sent a sort of lightning bolt through Hollywood that goes, oh, he ain't bluffing. McConaughey's not bluffing. He's really not doing wrong. Well, at that, after that, no, everything stopped. Nothing came in. For over a year, for the next 14 months, nothing came in. I called my agent every week. What do we got? Anything. He's every week. Buddy, McConaughey, I have not even heard your name. I bring up your name before I finish saying McConaughey. They go, no thanks. I'm like, okay. About 18 months into this sabbatical I'm on, I'm starting to go, maybe I did write oh, myself a one-way ticket out of Hollywood. I need to think about new vocations. What about a high school football coach? What about a wildlife guy? What about orchestral conducting? Hell, I don't know. Well, as life has it, as soon as I started to be okay with not going back and realize I might have written my one-way ticket out of Hollywood, the phone, phone rings. 
Well, guess who's now an interesting and novel idea for a drama like Lincoln Lawyer, like Killer Joe, like Paperboy, like Mud, like Magic Mike, like True Detective, like Dallas Fires Club, like Bernie. McConaughey. Why? Because Hollywood was like, after 20 months, it's like, where is he? What's he doing? We haven't seen him in the theaters in a rom-com. We, the world hadn't seen him in their living rooms. We haven't seen him shirtless on a beach. Where is he? What's he doing? Created some intrigue. Now, all of a sudden, I came, you know, it would be an interesting idea for these dramas. McConaughey. So I unbranded in 20 months. So then when the dramas came my way, I attacked them and rebranded. I want to, I've been trying to figure out the best way to ask this question. And so instead, I'm going to ask it with the limitations of hoping to just get the answer I'm looking for. Because I interviewed before Interstellar and I remember being like, all right, Christopher Nolan, like, let's get in there. And then, you know, you've got Scorsese, Wolf of Wall Street. Give me the Scorsese Nolan comparison, the difference, the things you think about when you talk about two of the most creative of our lifetime. Nolan, it's a general. First up the hill, last down the hill. Um, Also, really funny. No, 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 no one. He's got a great, great dry sense of humor. He really calls calls shit like it it is. Um, uh, You know, what he does is creates universes and rules within these universes and puts them on screen. He, He... that's coming from him, him and his brother sometimes, creating this alternate universe and takes us in and he introduces us to the rules of this whole new universe. You're like, this is, he's writing science fiction. And, and, it's, and, he, and so he creates an entire world. He's, and, he, and he's really, really, really good at scope. I mean, nobody can really, no, he's one of the, probably the best at doing the large scope of the epic scope of, the size. And then when he's his best, he does this, the wide size of this universe and then comes in and makes it personal. That's when he's his best is making it really personal as well within that universe. Cause it's, it's easy to get lost. And as a director, I think sometimes in those movies where you have a huge scope, it's easy to lose like, well, yeah, but who am I going through it with? Who's my character? Who's my lead? Who's my who are the relationships I care about? Now let's go to Scorsese. And love's funny. <laughs> his direction he look his direction to me as far as i remember did not involve one word in the english language <laughs> it was music and comedy it was like yeah 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 but, but it's more the roll it roll it that that was his he talked, it was all music. We're going to, so I was like, what is it we got in the scene? He's like, well, we're going to be over here. And the camera's going to be like, boom, 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 it's gonna boom, boom, boom. And I'd be like, yeah, okay, I got it. Boom, boom, boom. Like, yeah, 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 how about it? Do it. That's, that was our relationship from director to actor. And I loved it because if you don't want us to talk music or just do notes and make sounds to me without telling me what to do, I'm like, I, I got to hear the rhythm. Yes, let's roll. Um, and then again, you know, you, you go work with people like that. You, you're always looking for what's the magic sauce? Is there something that, that they're going to reveal to me that I'm going to go, oh, I've never seen before. That's the thing. And the answer is no. I, there's not a magic sauce. I've noticed it when I've worked with the best actors in the world. They don't have a magic sauce that you go, oh, that's how they do that. They just 
know what they do and they've learned ways that they do it well and they concentrate on that and really do the things that turn them on really, really well. They don't have a magic magic sauce that you're like going, oh, no one else has that. I don't know. No one else sees it that way. No one else perceives that way. No, it's a great answer. And I, and I appreciate you taking us there because I couldn't quite figure out how to perfectly word it. And I know, you know, in my business, which is, is cool, but it's, it's not cool as the stuff you guys have done. There'll be times you're like, I wonder what it's going to be like to work with this person. And almost every time it comes down to this guy busts his ass. That's it. He busts his ass. He works, works, heard. works. Heard. What's that? I said heard. Yeah, that that would be a consistent thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I thought you meant cow herd. And I was like, look, he's good. But, you know, because. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's that, that's that was like <laughs> A-G-A-R-D. Like sight, scene. Here, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I was like, "That's great!" Like a huge Cowherd fan. Um, speaking of, see, I was I was out to dinner with Colin on Friday, and and uh, we like to talk about the business, you know, at at, at probably pointless levels. So I'm going to ask this kind of a fan question of you. So when you work on Wolf of Wall Street with DiCaprio, you probably known each other, run into each other, million times. We you just randomly get a phone call or a FaceTime? Can you you guys have the relationship where you can just check in on each other unannounced nah, for no we reason? Don't, we, don't, we don't have it. We don't have a. I wouldn't, you know, we're, we've, we've been in similar places and had, and had some good times together, but I wouldn't call us like running mates or we don't call each other every month or anything like that. I've, I reach out to him he'll respond. If he reaches out to me, I'll respond. But that, that comes along. I think Scorsese had seen mud and like, and, and I think that's where it's from. Anyway, I was on my way to lose and wait for Dallas Buyers Club when I went and did that. And I was down to about 153. And I remember that I'd heard from him, from someone else saying, can you not keep dropping weight right now? And I was like, okay, I won't lose any more, but this guy I'm playing, you know, I read the, I read the scene and he says the secret to this brokering job is cocaine and hookers. I'm like, I can be on the thin side because this guy's wired. <laughs> you know, So, so um, it went in and then, and, and, and got that, you know, got that job. It was a, it was sort of a, it was a two day job. That, that one scene where we're in the, in the top of the tower, having lunch with me and Leonardo. I didn't really know him that well. I respected his work and still do, but I'm stepping into a Scorsese movie with Leonardo DiCaprio and they're already a team. They're a well-oiled machine. All right. So I, do I have that anxiety? Damn right. I do. Um, but, you know, the, the story behind like me chest pumping, yeah. that's something I do and was doing on that day before the scene to relax, to get my voice down and to hopefully have the entire crew going, who's the freak over there? Because I wanted to feel like I was on an island. I wanted to put myself out there alone with people like, Wait. I needed it to get the confidence to overcome feeling of anxiety of being in this movie with Leo in this Scorsese movie in this scene that I know needs to sing. And we had done the takes without the chest bump because I never did that in the take. We'd done five takes. It was done. Scorsese's happy. I'm happy. We're moving on to something else. And it was Leonardo's idea. He raised his hand. He said, hang on a second, Marty. He leaned over and he goes, what's that thing you're doing before? That chest bump. And I told him, and he goes, what if you did that in the scene? I was like, sure. And what you see in the movie is that next take. 
Yeah. No, I love that story. I love that story because you said something in there that was really interesting too, is those guys have been attached to the hip now for such a long time. And it's like, Hey, you know, I want to show you some of my moves here too. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they I, dish me the ball, you know, where do you, there you go. You talk about great collaboration. You got a lead and you got a new guy stepping in me and you got a lead in Leonardo who's already got his, his, his rip and, and ways and working with, with Marty. And he comes up with an idea that he hand, that's like a point guard dishing of player of the ball. He dished me the ball and said, I'm, I'm going to hit you for the layup. here. What about that thing you're doing before the scene? What if you did it in the scene? That's cool collaboration. I know there was a friendship there with Matt Damon. Is he still upset about not getting cast in Magic Mike? <laughs> I don't know, Damon. You're going to call in and let me know about that, babe? Hey, come on now. I've seen you with your shirt off, babe. <laughs> Uh, he must be, he must still feel a pinch about not getting past Magic Mike. I mean, that's probably why, yeah, last time we talked, he was probably a little, uh, a little gruff with me. Yeah. Cause I, I, again, I couldn't confirm it or not. Cause he was like, it's not that I didn't get cast. It's that they didn't even think of me. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, he's doing good work. He's always been doing good work. Magic so. Mike. One of the other parts of the book is is getting to the the side of you. I got a couple more things I want to do here before we finish up. Um, yeah. You know, you when you were younger and, and clearly the freedom of, of not having the family, just going, hey, I'm going to do this. Yeah. And you head down to the Amazon for 22 days. What happens at that stage of your life when you are, you know, famous enough and, and you show up with a couple shirts in a bag and go, hey, I'm just, I'm out here doing this. What's the reception for you at that stage of your life? Here you go. And it's the reception I was looking for and what I needed. Look, you get famous. All of a sudden, the world becomes a mirror. You get famous. What, what's the hardest part for me? I don't meet strangers anymore. Everyone's got a biography on me before I've met them. They're coming up saying, I'm sorry about, I'm sorry about Ms. Hud. And I'm like, wait a minute. Number one, you didn't know my name. How'd you know I had a dog? How'd you know her name was Ms. Hud? And how'd, how'd you know she had cancer? You just get four informal things of invitation and stepped into my life. Now you get famous, you get successful, you get, I love you. You get pats on the back. You get, you're so great. I needed to go see what a, what's bullshit and what's real. So I want to go someplace in the midst of my fame. I want to go someplace where nobody knows my name, doesn't know me from John Doe and I'll show up and all they, all their only and sole measurement of me will be, who they met when I got there. We'll never talk about what I do. They've never done no, I'm in the movies, nothing. And then when I say goodbye, 22 days later, and I'm hugging the people I'm with, and they got tears running down their face, and I got tears running my, down my face, I know it's based only on the man they met 22 days ago. No mirror, no biography, no baggage. Oh my gosh, Matthew McConaughey's, none of that only based off of who they spent time with in that 22 days. It's a form of finding anonymity, form of me checking in going, oh yeah, I know why I got it. I know why. I know, I know, I know. Now I understand why I'm getting some success. I know where it came from. I got it in me. And I needed that. I needed to have to go, okay, that part of you is real. You're still, that's, you're, that's who you are, Matthew. And, you know, am I saying that's, all the reasons that I've been successful? No, but I needed that real check-in that was not, could, you know, that, that, that wasn't measured by fame for my own significance and worth. The last thing I want to ask you about, it's a little 
more personal. Um, and it's, it's maybe, I don't know if it's a deeper thing or not, cause I don't think there's a, a large number of us that have the same, same deal. And I know your timeline's a little different than mine, but your parents had been divorced a couple of times and married a third time. Right. Yeah. And I, and I know that that happened, you know, you were, you were the youngest, my parents, <laughs> I lost track, but it, it didn't, the divorce didn't take until about the sixth attempt. And I grew up with it as the oldest. And I know that no matter what your upbringing is, there's certain things. I don't love blaming parents for everything because I don't think it's entirely fair. Um, in some cases, it is. And you can have divorces that is the best thing that can happen to the kids and, and whatever. But I think there's something that at least happened to me. And I don't know if it it makes you a bit of a fighter. It makes you think you can fix everything. It makes you it's kind of a romantic because you see this this love that's full of tension. Right. And, I, and I know you're younger, but do you think that had anything to do with making you fix what you didn't like about your career, having you be what I think is your biggest attribute is how sincere you are. Do you think that kind of shaped you? Because you, you have a unique parenting situation, which was certainly the case for, for somebody like me, because oh, it just doesn't happen that often. Right. Um, man, it, it might add something to do with it. I mean, it sure as hell informed me that it's like, and I think you get this, this is what I hear some people like about the book, which is, it's not over, man. Go fail. Take more risk. Mom and dad, get a divorce. Can't live with you. Last six months, ah, let's try it again. Go another 10 years. Get a divorce. Can't live with you. Go by another year. I can't live without you. But without sentimentality, it's like, yeah, that's what we're doing. We're trying it. And it didn't work. Then you try it again. Who's keeping score? Oh, we'd have been divorced twice? Oh, shit, yeah. Yeah, whatever. That one last one felt like a vacation. Anyway, we're back together now. Without sort of psychiatric therapy on it or what's wrong, like, no, you just you just you deal with the problems. It's hard. You deal with that. You get back up and you take another risk. And let's try and make it work again. So I think maybe the, in definitely something about not, uh, taking risk and not feeling floored by failure, not feeling like, Oh, but you know how it is, man. When we fail, we got to watch that our mind, uh, when it, our mind starts to go, and this is the mean. This is now how it's supposed to be. Bullshit. <laughs> In the same way, when things are going great, which I'd rather prefer to go, and this is the mean. This is how it's supposed to be. We get, resp- I get reminded all the time. No, that's not the mean either. But hey, I think, you know, looking in my own marriage, look, not many people know this, Camilla, my wife, her parents were married twice, divorced three times. They ended up divorced. Mine ended up married. So we both came together and we're like, well, we got some reasons to like question this whole marriage thing. <laughs> and plus at the time before we decided to get married, which we were together a long time and actually had two children before we did, we were like, well, what do we want to switch this thing up? What we're doing, it's going well. Um, so we had to come to terms with both look at marriage in a different way than our parents did, but also we didn't judge it. Both of us were like, look at these awesome love relationships our parents had. Talk about can't live with you, can't live without you. And just getting back up, up off the mat, doing it again. Let's try it again. Not about pride. Let's <laughs> try and just, I love you. Try and work this thing out. I don't know. I'm sorry about that last one. I bogeyed. I shanked it. <laughs> Let's try it again. That I think that in there inherently is where 
maybe a lot of my, uh, my embracing risk probably has come from. Yeah, I, th- I really think it is because I, I think there's a part of you, if you grow up with that kind of situation, you're just like, all right, well, I'll fix it. <laughs> like, let's fix it. I remember <laughs> some early breakups that'd be like, well, we'll fix it. And be like, no, this is over, man. And I'm like, yeah, what yeah. are you talking about? No, no, no. You, you fix yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and there you go. You know, um, it's, it's, you, you find the right one. I mean, you find the right one or you got enough of a connection. It works enough for the both of you that when it, something does get broken, you don't go, it's over. You go, ah, no, there's enough. I got it. What we, when, we're, when we're together, you know, I think we, we say this in relationships. We have someone like that. When, when you're together with someone, you're like, no, when it's good, it's worth more. It's worth sticking with the fix. It's worth getting back up and going, let, let, let's, let's do some maintenance. Let's work on this. Let's keep it. Let's, keep, let's try and stay in the game together. When the good times and the true times are, are, are worth it. I want to thank you for the book, but thank you for always, you know, sharing your stories. And I really like what you said there at the end, you know, people keeping score, the, the amount of time we spend worrying about other people keeping score of ourselves is a complete waste of time. Yeah. And, um, you're never, you're never a bad time to hang out with here, man. Green lights out on paperback, Matthew McConaughey. And of course, thank your mother for us all. I'll do it, Ryan. Always great talking to you, man. This episode is brought to you by Crown Royal. This NBA season, Crown Royal is celebrating the loyal fans that show up for every tip-off. I love every tip-off. I love every one of them. And people ask me, hey, are you tipping off tonight? Because they know that's code for, are the games on? And I'll say, yeah, come on over. Bring your kids. I don't care about the audio feed. You can walk in front of the television. Because this time of year, the second half of the NBA, it's about family. And that's one of my favorite things about my life. Crown Royal believes if you live generously, life will treat you royally. Visit crownroyal.com to get ready for tip-off. Please drink responsibly. This episode is brought to you by Cintas. In sports, you're always thinking of that next play. It's the same with business. Cintas has the products, people, and solutions that help keep you a step ahead. And your Cintas MVPs are the dedicated service reps who help make sure your team has what you need when you need it. They really got you covered. Cintas has workwear and apparel for almost any job imaginable. They have styles that are durable, comfortable, and great looking, and they'll deliver fresh uniforms back to your business every week. They'll deliver floor mats and restroom products and stock your essential cleaning supplies. They provide first aid supplies, safety training, and life-saving AED defibrillators. And then they'll even test and inspect your fire extinguishers, fire protection systems, and emergency exit lights. Visit Cintas.com and get ready for the workday. This season, football fans are back in action. Whether you're a pro quarterback or an armchair quarterback, a Fairweather fan or a diehard fan, all of us, well, almost all of us, are finding something to celebrate. I've been to most of the big stadiums, the rowdiness of a Saturday night in LSU, the elegance of Texas, the whiteout of Penn State, the horseshoe, the swamp when it's right, Athens throw it in there, the hill at Clemson, Oregon when it felt futuristic, Palo Alto for a nice Saturday afternoon. Um, whether you're home or at any of these great venues or how you're repping your team, the Columbia slash fan hunting gear that I've seen at some of those SEC schools or the face painting out at BC. And of course, how all fans celebrate a win or their reaction to a loss. LSU never knew they'd lose. Texas Tech, when they beat Texas, I thought there was a chance the entire place was going to fall under martial law. 
But State Farm offers surprisingly great rates on car insurance for all types of fans, no matter who you are or what you're celebrating. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Get a quote today. You want details? Bye. I drive a Ferrari, 355 Cabriolet. What's up? I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid. So, now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required. Okay, just Kyle and I today, which is really, let's not kid ourselves, we only want Kyle on Life Advice. Life Advice email is lifeadvicerr at gmail.com. Do you play golf, Kyle? No, I mean, we've been over this. I'm scared. I'm scared to do it in a public setting. I'll go to Top Golf. I told you I would give you a really decent set of spare I know, clubs. I know. And that All was right. like a year ago. I don't think I've seen yeah. you since a year before you said that either. So Yeah, I still think somebody from the ringer stole my new balances that StockX sent me too. So uh if I'll see you, if we can arrange an exchange. Yeah. No, I, the sneakers have nothing to do with you. The the golf clubs are on me. I could have invited you and Titus down at some point, but I didn't. Um but that's not really because I don't like anybody. I guess I just I'll realize hey, I don't really hang out with anyone. So oh, I get all right. it. Yeah. But then I do hang out with people because that's not entirely true either. I kind of say that and then I'm like, all right, now I'm going to hang out with people. All right, here we go. Um, Our guys checking in from Laredo. No need for measurables. Not ideal. I've been a golfer about two decades, 20 years, kids. Still not any good, but shoot low to mid 90s. You know what? That's fine. Unless he's doing kind of the round down thing. It's probably over 100. But yeah, I don't know. If you're shooting bogey golf, it's probably a little frustrating if you've played a lot over 20 years and you're not in the 80s more consistently because I've seen guys that don't look like they're great athletes um, that just play a lot, figure it out, and, and can shoot in the 80s regularly. But bogey golf's not exactly a bad time. Problem came up as I'm playing with a friend. Uh, I normally give him a few, straight, a few strokes, but he's not far off in my skill level. We went out recently. I was playing well. Ended up with an 85. Nice. Nice. My friend, on the other hand, had the worst day I've seen him have since picking up the game about 18 months ago. Beat him by 40 strokes. Wow. So he shot a 125. My question is, how do you handle rising tension and general pissed off attitude in the cart between shots? It was a Sunday and the course was on the slow side. So we had a lot of time to kill in the cart and at the tee boxes. Normally, I try to laugh it off and find the bright spot in his game, but it just wasn't there. And he was becoming more upset. And as any golfer knows, that almost always leads to worse play. Any help for dealing with this? Uh, this happens to everybody that plays golf. Uh, I don't play at all anymore. I played this past week um, at the Vineyard Golf Club, uh, which shout out to them. I appreciate you letting me get on for a quick, I don't know, I think I played like seven holes because it was raining. Um and my brother is there, so it was kind of cool to be home. And my brother had never golfed before, so I was like, hey, look, let's get out there and swing it around a little bit. Um, and it just reminded me how much you actually can love it, even when you're not that good at it. But I also know myself, and I also know I'm super competitive, and I'm hitting a couple of bad shots. I'm literally not playing on a course in a couple of years. And, of course, my brother's younger than me, so he's not allowed to get mad at me. But I wasn't, I wasn't happy after a couple of shots, and I had to be like, hey, what would you expect? This is a really, really hard game. This is a really hard game, uh, but that's not normally the way you feel. So I remember, I think the last time I played in something for real, it was a tournament, you know, best ball. So I'm good to have a round for that, um, even though I'm not that good. And I hit a couple bad tee shots, which is what I was there for. And my buddy's like, wait, are you going to get pissed today? Like you don't even play anymore and you're going to get mad. And he was kind of giving me a warning. He was really looking at me, giving me a warning. Like, you, are you going to try to carry yourself? Like, you have this expectation that you're just going to come out here and shoot like in the 80s or just, you know, we're going to be using your ball throughout the entire day. You're here for about five tee shots, hopefully. And that's the only reason you're here. 
And he was right. He was right. Um, because it's really when you're not good at it to then get mad is really about something else. You know, I can accept being mad about some things every now and then when it comes to golf, you know, like some guys that are pretty good, they get some money on the line. Somebody wants to throw a club, but if you're throw a club, kick the cart, be mad, swear after every shot, it sucks to play with. It just sucks to play with you because then you're, then you're kind of just doing like this performance thing. Um, and so to handle this, I mean, if you're that close enough friends, you can say, I would think you could just say, Hey, you know what, man? Like, and it sucks because you can't like do it out of the first tee box because then it rattles him and he's going to be a mess for the first few holes anyway. And then he's going to blame you for bringing it up. I think you're going to bring it up in, in a softer manner. Like my buddy did it to me directly because he knows I like direct where he's like, wait, are you going to be mad about bad shots today? Is that what you're going to do? You never play. And he was right. And it reset me. And I go, you know what? Relax. Just be happy. I'm here with my friends. Um, but I'm, I guess I'm giving myself credit for being able to adapt to that because I don't know that everybody's going to handle that the right way because I don't know what this guy's about. But I would maybe in a playful way, the next time you're out, maybe having beers, not golfing, maybe a third party, maybe there's another friend that's part of the core group here. You bring him out, maybe you bring two guys out and you guys just all start bullshitting about whatever. And then it gets to the golf episode and you just start going, man, you were on one last week. And then you talk it out with him a little bit, right? So that it doesn't feel direct, but it's exactly what you're doing. And everybody starts giving each other a hard time. And then, you know, as the beers flow, you can start saying, I don't know that I can cough with you again, man, if you do that. And so these things will be planted, implanted into his head so that hopefully if he's a reasonable person, the next time around, he'll remember this, even though it was playful, it didn't feel accusatory. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't you being as mad as you are and being annoyed by it. Like I had a friend one time we were playing and look, we were out bullshitting. He started taking golf more seriously than I did. And we weren't playing for any money. And he was like, what did you have on that? I was like, I think I had a six. And he's like, you had a seven, Ryan, you had a seven. And then he counted back the strokes. And again, I wasn't even trying to cheat for any reason at all. I just fucking didn't care. And I was like, I think I had a six. He's like, you had a seven, you had a seven. And I was like, man, that's some pent up shit there. Like what's going on with that? He's like, well, you don't always keep score. I was like, cause I don't really care. I go, I wasn't, I wasn't going to tell people if I shot a 90, now, at this point, when I was playing with him, I definitely didn't care. The time when I was decent and had a membership, I we cared and we kept it straight. But I wasn't better than the other guys, so I didn't play for money anyways because I was going to lose. Um, but I was like, wait, you're really, really mad about this whole thing. So golf people could get, you know, they can get really mad about a bunch of different things. I don't think you're wrong in this one. I think you're right. But if you do it off the first tee box, hey, you were an asshole last time. Don't be an asshole again today. Then you've basically ruined the round. You've ruined his day, even though it doesn't seem like you could ruin anything beyond if you shoot a 125. Um, I would I would do it playfully if there's some other guys kind of plant the seed that, hey, that wasn't the greatest time. But do it in a way where it feels like you're just busting balls so he doesn't get all bummed out, defensive and offended. Kyle? I don't know. I don't know about any of this. I think I would actually just take your advice because I don't have any to give. Okay. Um, that wasn't a great Kyle one, and that's my fault, Kyle. So you understand that, right? Like, I think people come for the Kyle. Maybe they come for the Ryan, they stay for the Kyle. I think that's probably... That's probably... That's apt. Learn. That's probably apt. Yeah, yeah, right. All right, so let's uh, let's turn up the heat again. This one's... Um, I don't know if this one's... It starts off sad. It feels sad, but maybe you can be happy too. Who knows? 39. Six foot, 195. Can do 12 straight strict pull-ups. It's great. Um, kind of in between dad bod and fit. Married, seven years. Younger daughter. Just bought a house. Uh, just got a huge hammer dropped. Wife does not want to have sex with me anymore. 
She said she gets anxious about it, doesn't want to have the pressure of that part of her relationship. Sex for us is pretty standard, nothing weird, usually maybe once or twice a month, which I was totally fine with. But now she said she wants zero. I did not think there's another guy because my wife basically has been asexual for a while now. Um, she doesn't mention good-looking men on TV. There's some other stuff in here I'm just going to leave out, but I think you guys get the picture here. Um, when a guy hit on her at the gym months ago, she was weirded out by it. I'm basically a broken man. I'm frustrated and upset. It's extremely hard not to think of it. It's another guy, but I don't think that it is. She works from home all the time, and the only time she ever goes all out is with my daughter. Uh, very rarely has a girl's night out. Talking once a year maybe here, so I assume cheating is not there. We've discussed options like divorcing or an open marriage. She says she feels bad that she can't fulfill that part of our marriage and encourages me to go out on a date basically an open marriage. I don't know what to do. We just bought this house. It's really great. My daughter loves it. Um, close to family. I love seeing my daughter every day, her growing up. This is very important. We both make six figures. I'm on the low end. She makes close to double and plans to make much more. Um, high rent area. So um, he's, he's talking about if he divorces, his budget isn't really going to work out because real estate right now. And as we all know, some of the you real estate guys out there, we all know this, this part of the podcast, you guys are your favorite part, but yeah, real estate's insane. in some of those desirable places like we've never seen before in the country. So he's basically saying like, look, I could move into a co-op if I want to move out. My wife and I joked about me retiring 15 years to just taking care of the house, but I feel like that's down the drain. I don't think in my forties, I would be back on the scene, but I guess that's where I'm headed. Any advice would be appreciated. Love the pod and thanks. Well, some guys are hearing this going, it's on man. You live in the dream, um, but that's not the case, right? There's, there's some real emotions here. It feels like everything with the family part of it was fine, um, even if she were willing to only have sex once or twice a month. I will tell you that um, hearing the stories from different friends long term, uh, Kyle, does it kind of blow your mind when you talk to older people? And I know that I'm older. But I, since I've I've never been married, but when you'll talk to people and be like, "Hey, it just stops," like you just stop doing it. How common, how often that happens? And I would say to the single guys listening, how horrifying that sounds. I don't like. I don't know what the truth is. Like, I feel like some things feel like myths, and they're not. And I don't really talk to many older people about. What, what the frequency is with sex once you get to a certain age or I or I know the myth is after marriage but then I know like in the beginning of marriage it's like cool but then like I just I guess it's a gray area for me and I've heard conflicting things through TVs and my very few conversations that I've ever had with somebody in, in the 50s 60s I guess 50s would probably be more 40s 50s so I guess I don't know which way it could go it just seems like a pretty shitty dice roll and it could either like stay good or go really bad so I guess I wouldn't ever say that I've had a read on it, but I just, I've got conflicting responses. Okay. Well, I'll tell you right now, it's not a myth. All right. I have too many friends now and you know, I'm definitely older than you. How old are you again? I'm 27. Right. So, okay. I've got like two decades on you now. I'm telling you, it's not a myth. I mean, it happens, but until you experience it yourself, it always feels like this fable, you know? You're like, wait, what? Like, what like happens? everybody, like, like this, the situation with like Ray and Deborah and everybody loves Raymond where he's just like begging and it seems like it happens <clears throat> once every four weeks for him. But then sometimes yeah, I wasn't it seems a huge like it happens more about often. everybody yeah, loves Raymond. I I, Jesus. I didn't watch that show. Okay. That was a go-to for you. Were you a big King of Queens guy? 
No, I was actually not a big King of Queens guy out of spite because I thought Everybody Loves Raymond was so great. Okay. All right. Fair. Fair. Okay. So this is true. And clearly this guy's writing about it. It's true. I think the biggest thing, man, is you can't be so upset with yourself, first of all, right? I mean, unless there's something that you're not admitting to us, which is, you know, can be the case a lot of these times. We're only getting one side of the story here. But if we're to take this the way it's being presented to us is, I know this is devastating because you want the family part of it. Like, you don't want to just move out. Um, but yeah, it does feel weird. I mean, that's that's got to be kind of weird. Like, you come home and your wife's like, how was your date? And she has no problem with the emotional part of this where you'll become emotionally attached to somebody else or you're not allowed to be emotionally attached. You can only be physically attached. But then once you become physically attached, a lot of times you do become emotionally attached and she's okay with all of that stuff. So it's not just that she decided she just doesn't want to have sex anymore about it, which again, you know, you've, you've got to deal with. Um, I think the part where she's totally okay, like I'm just, I'm wondering what she says to divorce if it's even discussed. Like if you say to her, I'd like to be divorced. Um, is her response no? Or is her response like, yeah, totally, I get it. That's fine. Like, is she that detached from it? Because now we're talking about something that's beyond just withholding sex. It could just be that, you know, she doesn't want to be with you anymore. And any one of my friends that um, has either been divorced or has talked about it, because I, I think it, you know, probably creeps into most relationships. You know, somebody at some point, even the stronger marriages, there'll be a, some rough patches there where you're like, wait, is this not going to work out? Um, I never really quite know. So I don't pretend to have the answer to this again as a non-married, non-parent, but the calculus of how much do I do for my family? How much do I do for the other person? How much do I do for the relationship? And how much do I do for myself to make sure that I'm still happy? Because I think that last part's the one that's the easiest to ignore. Um, you know, I personally, you know, uh, can can understand like a family fighting to stay together, but sometimes fighting to stay together is really the worst thing that you can do. Um, I think it's great. And, you know, being a parent um, immediately gets you out of your own head. You start thinking about this other person, the bullshit that's, that gets you caught up in all the, just the day-to-day -day nonsense. Like none of it really matters anymore. So it's easy to get through that stuff because you got something that really matters uh, that you got to get up for every day and make sure you're creating a better life for. And there's, there's a selflessness in that that I think is the beauty of, of being a parent and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it doesn't mean it has to be 0% about you. And I, I think, you know, some of the experiences I've had with my own life and, and other friends, it's like, you can't, and maybe this makes me sound selfish, but if it's 50% about your daughter and 25% and, and about the marriage, you know, it's still, it's okay to have that number be higher than zero about yourself. So really what I'm saying here is I would figure out like, where is she on the marriage? Cause if it's, if it's not just sex and that she doesn't care if you're not there the next day, um, then you're going to be in a relationship with somebody that doesn't even want you around because you love being around your daughter and it's because you don't want to live in a shittier house. You know, I would live on a couch before I would live in a shitty living situation. Um, but again, I don't have a daughter, but I've always felt like, you know, kids, kids are smart. Kids are around you every day. You know, they're your third roommate or it depends on how many kids you have, you know, growing up in a house where that part of at the top is, is strained. I think people will say, again, this is my own experience, but people will say, hey, stay together, kids, stay together because the kids stay together. 
It's like, yeah, that's, that's not, that's not always in the best interest of the kids. So I would figure out the wife part first, man. You know, honestly, I would need a more definitive answer on where she's at with you hanging out with other women. If she has no jealousy whatsoever, that's, that's weird. Cause then it would make me think she doesn't even really care about you. And I don't mean to be so brutal about it, but like that's this, this email feels like it's, it's more about something else than it is just a sex part. Now, if she's cool and she loves you and she's supportive and she wants you in the family and all that stuff's good. And you're going to be out on the scene at 40. All right. You know what I mean? Good luck. Uh, it's going to be, there are enough challenges if you haven't been sharpening the iron out in the scene for over a decade now as a 40 year old guy, not to bum you out, but it's real. Um, you could get on a dating site, but now that means her family and neighbors, somebody's going to see it and they're going to be like, what the fuck's going on here? Um, and you're going to have to find somebody who's down to hang out with a guy that actually has a family where it's not a Don Draper situation. Unless you look like him, you'll be fine. Uh, so there's, yeah, you get some stuff, but I would, I would try to figure out the first part of this first. Any thoughts, Kyle? Not too many, not too many thoughts. I will say I am a child of divorce. So, um, I, it's not the fifties anymore, dude. You can get divorced if like things aren't working out and like, obviously you're writing a podcast about it. You're definitely thinking about it, which means you're probably thinking about it every day, which means it probably makes your days pretty shitty. And I think that's one of the grounds for divorce is when all of your days are shitty. Um, but yeah, it's not the fifties anymore. You could totally do that. And I guess I just kind of have more of a question. I would hope you'd accept a follow up here. He said that she's basically asexual. So I did a little Google search, wound up on WebMD. So ex asexuality is, it's, it's actually, it's kind of a muddy water situation. It seems like you can say the word and it's, it could be a sexual orientation or it could just be the absence of sexual feeling. So it's just like, I guess I'm wondering, because the first thing I was going to say is, did you have a conversation about it? It sounds like he did, where he was just like, listen, this is something that bothers yeah. me. I've noticed we're not having sex. So like that, that hard, awkward part is out of the way. So he did that. I guess, is it something where it's just not going to happen right now? Like I've dated somebody who's like, had like a tough sexual past where it's like, sex be sex was like a bargaining chip or, or, or whatever. Like they just have weird feelings about sex, but it sounds like this is like, simpler as like, I just don't have any sexual attraction to you. So like, have you actually come to the conclusion that this is just never going to happen for you? And maybe, you know, that not that she would be into like taking some sort of pills or chemical reaction things, but like, have you like already come to the conclusion where it's just like, this is how I feel not like, yeah, I don't know why I haven't been feeling it lately. Like, have you, have you really done the hard conversations if you're talking, I guess they must've, if they're talking about maybe going on dates and stuff, I guess. Yeah, this is fucking tough. It I feels like all of this is, you're right. Whoa, wait, Kyle, you just dropped the, the divorce bomb on us all? What? Because like, it's like, it seems like that's one of those classic things like, yeah, so if she doesn't have any sexual attraction towards you, it doesn't mean she doesn't care if you're like spending your time with someone else and like enjoying like inside jokes with someone else. And, and I don't know, like you're still like, it's going to be really hard to balance that coming, coming home to then with kids and then also you have to spend time with her because you still like her as a person. You just can never get to the sexual thing that you guys both used to have. So it's like, I don't know, like it seems like one of those things where she's going to say, yeah, it's fine. And then it's not going to be fine. And then your life's going to suck for other reasons too. So I don't know. Wow. I think just... sex is a big part of a marriage. I think you should get divorced. <laughs> Kyle, just not, not mincing words. I, uh, I'm not ready to offer up anymore on this because I think there's a large part of the audience. It's like you two idiots 
should shut up uh, about this. Totally. We should never talk about also. any of this stuff, but that's part of the segment. <laughs> I mean, and the, honestly, it's not like this guy is like a lot of people who's like, yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot. Like he's had the tough conversations. He's He knows what she feels about. He's not like, I'm wondering what she's going to say about this. She told him this, the stuff that you'd never expect to be told, like, which means they must have been at least a couple conversations in. So like he's he's done. A but lot this stuff happens. You know, uh, you're right. You're totally right. But I just think it's always important to remind yourself that, you know what, um, there are all sorts of relationships that have all these where I'll hear about a divorce. I'm like, what? And then a buddy will tell me about something else. I'm like, what's going on? And you're always kind of like, I can't believe that's crazy. And then you start to realize like it's crazy when it isn't crazy. Right. The crazy ones. It's <laughs> like, nah, I'm totally I'm totally neutral. Everything. I'm just, you know, very content. Just a nice, easy, slow stroll through the park for the next 30, 40 years. Kids are good. Got to good schools. You know, no college loans, you know. And you're like, oh, so that that's that normalcy is actually the most odd, you know, the, the odd thing of, of all these different relationships. But I would just emphasize one more time. Don't feel bad about you wanting to feel better about your situation, whatever that solution is. Reminder, check out the Bill Simmons in-house and myself uh, NBA preview podcast two-parter. All 30 teams over-unders, our finals picks, awards picks as well. That's in the Bill Simmons feed. I will tweet it on this one. Thank you to Kyle. As always, we'll talk to you Friday. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC slim fit trouser, but I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com.